everyone, and welcome to the latest Brilliant Science podcast. In the studio today, we have Dan Tagle. Hi, Dan. Hello, Laura. And so, Dan, you work at the NIH. Could you give us a, a little explanation about your current role at the NIH? So I've been at the NIH for about 25 years, actually 25 years this year. Wow, congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> my day job is actually as Associate Director for Special Initiatives, which means I'm in charge here at the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences at the NIH in terms of developing uh, new and innovative programs that will help uh, tackle uh, some of the pressing problems that we have in drug development. Mm -hmm. I'm in, in my acting role, I'm also deputy director for NCATS, uh, which is a bit more administrative, but it's also a fun job. Wow. So you're associate director and deputy director. Do you have two business cards or just one? Uh, just one, just associate director, because that's my, my regular day job. I wanted to ask you a few questions about the Organs on a Chip program that you're working on right now, because I think that this is a very valuable program that we should definitely be sharing with a broader audience. So perhaps you could give us a, a little synopsis about what Organs on a Chip means for your team. Uh, sure. So one of, one of the key areas uh, that have been identified by, by numerous experts uh, coming both from academia and pharma are sort of like the, the models that we currently use for drug development, talking about the uh, 2D cell culture systems and then the animal models being used are very poorly predictive of the human response. Mm -hmm. And so when you use these this models uh, in, in the current drug development, uh, you go through the safety and the efficacy studies and then you use that data to apply to the FDA, to regulatory agencies, to uh, conduct those studies in humans. Mm -hmm. And quite often, because of the poor predictive, predictiveness of those tools, uh, those candidate drugs uh, fail in clinical trials. It's about 10 to 15 years oh. uh, to get to the stage where a particular drug is approved for market. Yeah. Uh, and it's also very uh, costly. It's about $2.6 billion for every drug that's approved. Uh, and that $2.6 billion price tag includes uh, all the other, other failures uh, that went in before that, that market-approved drug. Got it. And so the organs on chips came into concept uh, as a way to uh, create more predictive tools that would help in drug development. So tissue chips then combines uh, the fields of engineering uh, stem cell biology, microfluidics, and uh, the same uh, chip-based technology used in, in the computer microchips. So using those type of approaches where you use a chip to micro-etch uh, compartments and channels and fluids where human cells uh, can be seeded or, or uh, cultured in those uh, compartments, uh, and that this is where stem cell biology comes in, mm -hmm. uh, would, would essentially comprise of the same type of cells that would be um, native to the tissue uh, being studied. Uh, so, for example, if you're looking at the liver, uh, a 2D cell culture system, uh, an organ on a chip or a liver on a chip would essentially look at uh, not only the hepatocytes, but also looked at the, the all the different cell types, whether it be vascular cells, uh, be immune cells that are present in the liver, and would also include the microenvironment by which those cells 
are are being subjected to, and that would include, for example, blood flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could include uh, biomechanical stress. That could include uh, gradients in terms of different nutrients or different uh, oxygen levels uh, found in different compartments of the liver. Uh, so all of those are being recreated in in a organ on a chip system where if you can imagine several different tissues or several different organ systems uh, being represented would then uh, essentially mimic uh, organ function in these tiny microfluidic devices. Wow. So what was the first organ to be developed on the chip? Um, I I would say the the first successful one that was demonstrated to actually mimic human organ function was the lung on a chip. Mm. Um, that was actually developed and published uh, back in 2010. And then there were some early uh, progenitors, I would say, of a, of a heart on a chip mm-hmm. where you have essentially cardiomyocytes that would uh, have mimicked the, the beating rate of, of normal heart muscles. Wow. And so when you're working on these chips, there's, it seems like there's a lot of cross-functional research that needs to go on. So um, is it easy for the engineer to talk to the biologist and I guess the computer team? And how does that go, those types of conversations? Uh, So that's a very insightful question. Yeah, so we're talking about very multidisciplinary uh, teams of various expertise. And and certainly, I think the the language uh, by which they communicate can be different, and and I think that that's one of the things that's, in some ways, uh, a joy to uh, oversee this program here at the NIH, is is that uh, when I when I speak to the bioengineers and say, you know, here's a here's a problem, how would you consider solving this? And they would completely come up with. Uh, an entirely different solution mm. that a bio- biologist would come up with. Yeah, um, you know, so so they, because they're coming from different backgrounds, and so I think that that's part of the, uh, in some ways, the challenge is is making um, the bioengineers, the and the biologists and the uh, computer scientists, the informaticians, uh, come together and and address a common problem, and so by by having them work together. Um, you know, I, I think there there is now. Uh, I think it's the, the common problem that we're addressing that binds uh, all the efforts together and and help us uh, in some ways push uh, our approach such that it it becomes a reality. Yeah. So, which organs have you worked with right now? Which are you allowed to say which ones you have uh, ready to go or in development? Yeah, so there are a number of organ systems. So, so just one point of clarification, when I say organ and chips are being uh, supported by the NIH, so that means uh, using the money that's allocated to us to support all these efforts that are going on uh, largely in the academic community as right. well as in the small business community. Um, and so uh, we have been able to support uh, the development and actually the validation of a number of organ systems I mentioned the lung mm-hmm. uh, organ, uh, the heart, the kidney, liver, uh, pancreas, the GI system, um, developing the, uh, you know, even a fat on a chip, oh. um, a bone on a chip, wow. uh, the brain on a chip, a wow. blood barrier on a chip. Uh, so pretty much every major organ system in the body um, that is key to understanding uh, drug metabolism 
and, and drug action in human body in terms of assessing for, you know, first, the safety of that drug. Yeah. And then second, of course, is, is it going to be effective to treat a particular uh, disease or a condition? So have you ever, and this might be a super wacky question, but have you ever joined together different organs or tissues to create um, an even bigger model, so to speak? Um, yes, actually, we, we have. Um, and so, so this is in, in uh, collaboration with uh, the Department of Defense uh, uh, called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Program Agency. They created a platform that actually would, would sustain um, and, and, and have connected 10 major organ systems. And wow. so we have you know, all, all the individual organs and chips, uh, being able then to be actually be physically coupled uh, together uh, such that there is actual organ-to-organ crosstalk. Uh, that is important, um, especially when, when we're assessing for the safety of a particular drug candidate. Yeah. Uh, because as you can imagine, most, uh, most of the drugs actually get metabolized in the liver, mm-hmm. um, and then it, it gets distributed to the other major organ systems. Uh, but it, sometimes it's the metabolite that might actually pose uh, some toxicity problems right. uh, in a distant organ. So it could, for, for example, uh, be toxic to the kidney. Um, but you would not be able to tell if you're just testing it on the kidney on a chip. So you have to connect the liver uh, with the kidney on a chip and perhaps even the, the GI system on a chip uh, to be able to see how the breakdown of the drug as it goes through the liver, it goes through the digestive system, and then the metabolites then can, can be distributed into the other organ systems that you can unmask some of these toxicities. Mm-hmm. Are you looking at small molecule drugs, uh, biological drugs? Yeah, currently uh, we are looking at small molecules. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just actually at a meeting with the FDA and, and pharma, and we talked about you know potentially uh, how can we deploy uh, organs on chips in terms of uh, therapy development? And essentially, um, you know, we talked about how biologics like vaccines, um, cell therapy, gene therapy mm-hmm. can be used. Yeah, because I think that that will help to just in- just increase the impact of these great new tools that the teams are, are working on right now. So what's your ultimate goal for all these tissue on a chip, organs on a chip? How do you see this rolling out to the, the broader community? Yeah, much of the tissue chip work is still very much under development. Um, so one, one of the main tasks that I have in, in making sure that the, this technology actually gets adopted, implemented in research, especially in, in uh, development of, of therapeutics would be to build confidence in this system. And so what, what does that entail? So that means uh, having the end users, primarily the uh, drug developers like pharma and then the uh, agencies uh, or the organizations like the FDA and, and other um, agencies that would be like the EPA that would be looking at particular use of this system uh, to evaluate toxicities, whether it be coming from from small molecules that's used for therapeutics or mm-hmm. even environmental toxins. Um, so in order to, to be able to build the confidence, one of the things that, that the NIH have done um, would, uh, was to establish uh, testing centers that would then independently uh, uh, validate, that means to, to test, 
each individual organ system mm-hmm. and essentially replicate the findings of the, the tissue chip developers um, and be able to show uh, whether the, the findings and the chips itself are, are, are being reproduced and, and the, pro, and, and the uh, results are robust and can easily be transported into uh, individual laboratories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have uh, activities going on right now where these uh, uh, organ systems are undergoing independent validation, and then also we set up a, a database um, that would also uh, collect and analyze a lot of this uh, data that's coming from these organs on chips. Um, and so I think that that's critical in, 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 in certainly having sort of like a, a central clearinghouse where all the data coming in from tissue chips can be uh, looked at and analyzed um, by the uh, academic investigators as well as investigators from pharma. Mm -hmm. Uh, So through the uh, small business program that we have here at the NIH, we've been able to uh, provide support to a number of startup companies that are in the process of manufacturing and commercializing these organs on chips. And, and that which should essentially uh, bring this into the market. Actually, this year, a number of, of uh, organs on chips, like the liver on a chip, mm-hmm. the, the, the gastrointestinal system on a chip, uh, the heart on a chip, are all now starting to be uh, available commercially. Wow, because that was going to be my next question. When would people be able to get hold of these to, to kind of bring into their own research? Yep, you can just look it up in a catalog of a particular... Uh, <laughs> tissue chip or organ and <laughs> a chip manufacturer and be able to order them. That's amazing. That, yeah, that's just so cool. So, um, and I wanted to ask another question. That was around your connection to NASA because this one blew my socks off, I have to say. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so one of the things that we're, I've been interested in would be the effect of microgravity on, on cells. Uh, it's been known um, that microgravity uh, induces cells uh, to proliferate, show uh, signs of you know epigenetic changes mm-hmm. in, in those cells. Wherein the astronauts would go up in space, um, they would uh, exhibit symptoms that would uh, mimic accelerated aging. Uh, so they would undergo. Uh, for example, uh, immune senescence, they would have muscle wasting, uh, they would have um, you know, cardiomyopathies or, or weakness of the heart muscles, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, uh, bone loss, uh, which of course uh, are some of the symptoms that can accompany uh, aging. Mm-hmm. And so one of, one of the opportunities that I thought we could capture in, in terms of partner, partnering with, with NASA uh, and it's a nonprofit affiliate, which is the Center for the Advancement of Science in Space, uh, or CASES, is to see if we can deploy uh, these organs on chips, uh, essentially to uh, capture uh, those type of changes that are happening at the cell level and be able to develop uh, molecular signatures uh, in some ways, uh, telling us what are some of the molecular changes that instigate those kind of effect, the accelerated aging effects. Because mm-hmm. the, the cur- uh, curiosity is that when the astronauts, for example, go back uh, to Earth, uh, they revert back to normal physiology. So that means all the changes that they experience uh, disappear uh, after a period of time. And so, the, of course, the scientific question there uh, is, is can we also 
uh, see and and mimic those kind of changes that are happening in my under microgravity yeah. and then be able to study also the same effects where the changes reverse back to normal and then be able to compare those differences and and develop signatures um, molecular signatures that can then be uh, used as targets for development of drugs right that can potentially slow down or slow mitigate down the effects of aging here on earth but another area of uh, interest for me is actually the uh, technological uh, innovation that can happen uh, when we work with the uh, you know the space engineers and the payload developers mm -hmm. um, because if, if when you know we're talking about small uh, microfluidic devices these chips are really small about the size of a USB stick um, or about the size of a credit card, um, but the the instrumentation that supports these chips can be enormous. They could be the size of a, you know, a, a refrigerator, for oh, example, and that I would see. include the pumps, the valves, the computers, the controllers, uh, the incubators, the imaging tools that are being used. Uh, but you know, can you imagine sh uh, shipping uh, up in a rocket? You know. Uh, uh, that kind of contraption yeah. for a single chip, but working with the space engineers and the payload developers, uh, uh, we call them the space implementation partners, they've actually looked at the technology that we have developed uh, in tissue chips and say, you know, this essentially needs to be reduced in size in order to make it uh, cost efficient. Last year when we started this just uh, work with, with cases in NASA, identified several projects, several organs on chips that can be used uh, to study not only the biology, but can also be used to innovate the technology. And so, like I said, when, when, when the uh, instrumentation is about the size of a fridge, yeah. they said this will have to be reduced inside <laughs> a shoebox. Yeah. So you so you not only are you working with teams to develop these organs on a chip, you are now working with rocket scientists too, and taking your uh, your research into outer space. I mean, how could you have imagined this? Well, every, everyone has a dream of yeah. being an astronaut yes. someday. Yes, So if, if not if not if not the uh, if not me myself going up in space, at least some of the ideas and some of the the technologies that we have developed here on Earth can 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 go up in space. Yeah. And so it, it, it's just actually uh, uh, quite exciting that our first payload is going up in November. <gasps> the biology side is already a, a success, and it you know, certainly will be a technological breakthrough. Because yep. uh, when, when I also talk to the astronauts who will be running these experiments, and they say, you know, we're, we're primarily fighter pilots, and, and, you know, we don't have science background. <laughs> we just have us push the button, and everything <laughs> should run automatically. <laughs> Um, and so everything was miniaturized. Everything was, uh, you know, made into turnkey technology. And so that's that's exciting to see if you know uh, to see the technology evolve at such a rate. Yeah. Uh, by just getting the right partners together. Mm -hmm. So then I'm I'm hoping that you'll be able to share with me the exact date for the liftoff. Yeah. So so we have one one of our first project going up uh, on SpaceX 16. And, of course, everything is subject to change, mm -hmm. but um, right now it's tentatively scheduled to launch uh, November 27. Right. Well, we'll make sure we get the word out for that. And we will have three more projects going up uh, on SpaceX 17 uh, scheduled for February 2nd of next year. Right. That's in my diary right now. So, Dan, what advice would you have perhaps for your younger self or for someone just starting out in research? 
Yeah, so, so that's a good good question. So, so I, I'd say um, as, as a young scientist starting off, um, you know, be able to look at the field uh, in general, ask the right questions, um, but be able to be willing to step out of your comfort level and and look at other experts uh, and other areas that could provide innovative solutions to mm-hmm. the problems that you're you're facing, so think outside the box, not only in terms of the science, not only in terms of the kind of expertise that you will need, but also in terms of the kind of partnerships uh, that you can you can engage in where, uh, you know, all these experts are, are coming in and, you know, bearing weight on a, on a common problem that we all face in science. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that not only makes the science successful, but it also creates excitement. Uh, in whatever effort that's, that you undertake. I think that's great advice. So with that, I'm going to sign off and just wanted to say a big thank you to you, Dan, for joining us today. I know you are an extremely busy gentleman and I do appreciate the time that you spent with us. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure to be with you and, and your audience, Laura. Thanks everyone for listening and don't forget you can subscribe to more brilliant science podcasts at bioradiations.com. Bye for now. This podcast is an original creation of BioRad Labs. BioRad is a trademark of BioRad Laboratories Incorporated in certain jurisdictions. All trademarks used herein are the property of their respective owner.